listen to me. Let's do that hockey. Welcome, everyone, to Dauber Prospects Report. This is report number 20. I'm Victor Nuno, one of the co-hosts here. With me is Peter Harling. How are you doing, Pete? I'm on vacation, kind of good. Thanks for asking, Victor. Getting in some some downtime here right before we go back to school and the hockey season starts too. So getting some good quality family time in. Thanks for asking. Oh, that's the best. Yeah, for sure. Get that all in before you're going to be neglecting them to watch all the hockey, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, we're really excited about this episode. We're going to talk to a real life NHL scout, Chris McDonald. So can't wait to get into that. Before we get started, we want to remind you that Dabber Prospects Report is a member of the Hockey Podcast Network. We're very excited to be part of the army of fantastic hockey podcasts. Please check out at HockeyPodNet for all the shows like this one, talking hockey from fantasy to team coverage to you name it. You can also use the DraftKings promo code THPN for listening to the show. More on that in a bit. And the DPR show is proudly sponsored by Fantrax. Fantrax is the ultimate league manager for a dynasty sport you play. It's completely customizable for however you want to set up your league from scoring categories and amazing draft room to host the draft pick trading and treasury options so you can not have to worry about collecting and distributing the money. Use our promo code to sign up for a free league using the link fantrax.com forward slash DPR show. All right. So we had some really great listener response to report number 15, scouting tips with Shane Malloy. So we decided to double down on that topic and and invite an NHL scout on. Chris McDonald is an amateur scout with the Seattle Kraken. And Chris is a Kingston native as well. We live in the same town and see each other on the rinks on a regular basis. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. And thanks so much for joining the show. How are you doing? Good, Pete. Thanks. Thanks for having me on today. Looking forward to it. Talking to you guys. Yeah, we love talking hockey prospects and scouting, particularly. Those are all right in our wheelhouse. And the people that listen to the show gobble it up. So let's get into it. Chris, we get a lot of guests on the show. One of the first things I want to ask you, actually, is a lot of the guests on the show and people that listen to it in the online scouting community watch a lot of hockey and write about prospects, folks like myself and Victor. And I'm always very aware of not referring to myself as a scout or saying I'm scouting prospects for Dauber Prospects because I'm not a scout. I don't draft any players outside of my fantasy leagues. And it's not like my job's on the line here if I don't scout very well. (laughs) Is it like poor etiquette for people to call themselves scouts when the really what they are is a writer? And and if so, is that something that kind of rubs scouts the wrong way? Well, that's a, that's a good question right out of the gate. I'm not sure it's really something that never doesn't rub me the wrong way. I guess I'll answer it personally first. I think as far as a writer goes, or there's so many people coming at it from different angles today, that I think that's something that I'm very aware of. And I think when I look around the room at our meetings now, compared to even 10 years ago, the dynamic has changed in regard to people's background and what they bring into the room. And when I see people tournaments now, for example, I see a lot of people like yourself that are people that either writers and or they're on podcasts. And I know that people share those podcasts quite a bit with each other and listen to them. And with the uh, that fellow you mentioned, Shane Moy, he's on the Channel 96 on the Sirius XM. Is that the same guy on and they have that Sunday morning prospect yep. Ho- hockey radio. prospect radio. Yeah. yeah. It's a great show. Yeah. And I think a lot of guys listen to that. I know if I'm in the truck and I'm coming home, I'll tune it on the odd time more to listen to a director of another team. Hope that he'll drop something that <laughs> maybe gets caught off guard, but they don't often do that. So I guess to answer your question, I don't think it's really bad etiquette. I could see where it could rub some people the wrong way, but scouting, like I said, there's so many people in the rink now that are coming at it from different angles. We've got analytics people that are starting to learn the nuances of eyes on scouting versus the data. So yeah, it wouldn't bother me, but I think it's just changing that it's changing so fast. So it doesn't bother me when I hear someone say, well, I go to rink to scout because really that's what you do. Your list is out there. Even the guys that have the podcasts and the industry rating, shall we say, is out there to say, well, this is what you know, Bob McKenzie, or this is what Craig Button, or this is what Central Scouting, or this is what whoever says their top 20 is. I think most people look at that and say, okay, well, I'm not sure why they have that person there, but I don't. But yeah, to, I don't think it bothers me to answer the question. <laughs> All right. Good to know. 
So those prospect writers or scouts and folks like myself, they're passionate, right? They're doing it because they really love it and they get gives them kicks yeah. and they enjoy watching hockey and for a lack of better term, scouting players. So help us out to be better at what we do and what we love, and which is watching young guys play hockey and uh, to try to get an idea of how they project to the pro level. So more specifically, I guess, what are the most important skills in your opinion for players to have to be successful at the pro level? Is it like smarts or skating, puck skills yeah, or something else? I think those three you mentioned, combination of skating, smarts, some skills, compete. I think at the NHL level, the compete level, and you look at our team this year, our compete level is crazy high. And that's probably one of the biggest reasons our team in the American League as well, going to game seven of the Calder Cup in Coachella this year with with our American League team, they compete is something that is hopefully there. And if it's not there, it comes out in most players. I, I don't see a lot of guys nowadays that don't compete hard and train hard almost year round. I think that's starting there to start the answer to that question. I think training now and even 15 years ago or 10 years ago, it's year round now for kids once they're in junior and wanting to play professionally. So our development guys, there's not much time off. So compete sort of looks after itself, you would hope. And if someone's not competitive, it's usually glaringly obvious. <laughs> that's not a good thing if you just don't compete. Because when you look at the Stanley Cup final, like last year, and you look at that team on Vegas, who's got a great chance to repeat, like they're a competitive group and they work for each other. And our team in Seattle is starting to do that now. And that's a great sign. So the skating and the hockey sense are things you really have to watch for. But I think when you're talking about sc scouting and ki young kids now, I think we're more getting into a discussion on projection. And that's the thing maybe to spend a little time on. And that what I guess personally I would look for is, you know, kids. They're kids at 17 years old. There's kids that you would have watched this past year in the Ontario Hockey League that look a lot older and look more physically mature. And, and I, if you could give that sort of a rating or a number, you know, I'll use Sam Bennett, for example, because it's safe because it's not our team. And I got to know him in quite well in his draft year. You can probably recall the, all the media attention over not being able to do a chin-up. And then mm. fast forward, this year at you know trade deadline, he's one of the most sought after, competitive, feared, you know, all those words that they use for a player that competes and he finishes his checks and he plays greasy, all those buzzword cliches. And here's a guy in his draft year that you may have said, this guy can't do a chin up. Like I'm worried he's ever going to be strong. So that's a hard thing to body type wise to say, project that this guy has all the tools and are those tools going to transfer Four years from now, five tops, you're going to know, yeah, that guy, he worked out. And then we're talking about a fourth overall pick, I believe, in Bennett, correct me if I'm wrong, in that draft. But now go the other way and say, I'd like to think Ben Hutton was a really good pick for us in the fifth round in Vancouver, one of my first years in Van, because he just won the Cup of Vegas and has become a very reliable, you know, plug-in third-pairing D that's a fifth-round pick and ended up playing still playing and having a good career in the NHL. So that projected pretty well down the college path. So if you want to talk about those type of things, looking for the skating sense combination. And if they're later on, if we get into talking about size, if they're not big, they better do something else unbelievably well, like Yanni Gord, for example, to say Marty St. Louis, that I'm going to be an NHL player, Cole Caulfield. The list is getting longer every year. Agree? small guys and they can play now then they for the rules and different reasons they can play now but they better do something really well yeah that that's a great rundown on that and we definitely want to get into the smaller player question later but i want to go a different direction for a little bit because we were talking a little bit beforehand and i know there's a lot that goes into evaluating the player before the draft there's a whole lot of viewings and things like that. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what happens after the draft, what happens within the organization? What are they, you know, whatever you can say, what do they kind of do with the player as they move forward to develop them? Well, I know with our team and it's nothing that's not common, I think for every team. So it's easy to share information. Most teams now it's almost immediately within the next day, you're at a development camp and the amount of time and preparation, like I'm blown away by watching Jeff Tambellini and his staff in Seattle from the time 
those names are picked and they've got a good idea who that name may be in the first round, especially if you're picking high enough to maybe put two and two together and it lands where you think it's going to land. But even though second, third, and we've had a lot of picks, fortunately, since we've come into the league, Jeff and his staff are on that connected with the family. They've got the Brooke Coyle and her staff are doing the travel. They're getting them in. They've got a week planned or whatever many days it's going to be of so much stuff in Seattle with our NHL coaches, with our AHL coaches, with our strength guys, with our nutritionists. And it's, I describe it as more of a, it's a get to know you. It's an information session. It's an eye opener. And it's amazing when you see kids come to it for the second time, no matter where I've worked, how much more prepared they are for it, Victor, than the first time they come. It's the first time they come. It's like, I like to use a saying, you know, drinking from a fire hose is a cliche I often use. And that first year, that's what they look like. It's like, oh my God, like, and there's not even an NHL guys there. It's just like there's Dave Haxtell, there's Paul McFarland, there's Danny. I mean, an NHL practice facility. It's unbelievable. And then the next year when they go back for Ty Nelson and, and Shane and all those kids, when they go back the second year, you expect the leadership role out of them. And then you look at a guy like Matty Beneers who wins the Calder Trophy, but he was so good his first camp and then his second camp. It's unbelievable the difference in the players. So they do a lot with them, Victor, to answer your question. And they're, we're working on probably every aspect of what they probably need. And they would pour through our reports from during the year. And if there was something in those reports that maybe said, you know, about skating or about shot or about passing, or they would take those specific things, watch them, and then have a detailed plan with some video follow up every couple of weeks to say, well, here's your game. Here's your goals for the first month going back to your junior team. Here's what we're looking for. Here's what we expect. And then work very closely with the coaches, obviously, too, that they're going back to because mixed messages, especially in the goaltending world, when you've got multiple goalie coaches, maybe for certain players, you want to make sure everyone's pulling in the same direction for development. Follow up to that one. When teams draft players that are coming out of Europe or North America, is there any concern about what sort of influence you'll have on their development, right? So you draft guys out of the OHL. And, you know, you're scouting the OHL, you're following up with these players, you're having conversations with the coaches, and there's like a transfer agreement or understanding between the teams in the NHL. And then over in Europe, and I don't know, in the KHL or the Liga, how is it different over there? Like, do you guys not have any kind of influence over the ice time players get in their European clubs? Or do you get as much feedback from the team? And do you have any input on the players? I would say in our situation, it's very good because we have a guy who just recently finished playing over there, Franz, and he was Franz Nielsen, and he was just over there uh, playing recently and just started with us in development. So he has so many great contacts within the league, within the SHL, within all those European teams. So when we had Jan Neiman go back and play, he knew his coaching staff really well. Even anybody that we've had go back over there, it's been good for us. Now, having said that, when you mentioned the KHL, I think that's a different animal, right? Like, especially in the last 18, whatever it's been since, you know, the invasion yeah. of Ukraine, that, that's changed the landscape. But we had a goalie we drafted in the first year in the sixth round of the draft who's now hopefully going to get some KHL time. But your access to those players, quite frankly, isn't what it is here. No, simply because of geography, because of access. Like I, And I guess I can speak to that a little bit because... The year I lived in Europe working for Arizona, a good friend of mine, Brett Stewart, who was a Regina native, believe it or not, but retired from playing in Europe for many years. And he does player development and pro scouting for the Coyotes still to this day and was moving in and out of Europe a lot and lived over there, pardon me. But he also went into Russia before it was hard, almost impossible to go into Russia. He would go in and work with prospects and had, but that took a long time, Pete, to build up those relationships with those teams to say, hey, you know, I'm going to come in if it's okay to work with your guys. To You're right in your observation that in Russia, that's a very different animal. I've never heard of anyone, but it doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I've never heard of anyone sort of, you know, phoning up CSKA and saying, I'm going to come and work with one of your players because we want them to come over because they don't really want them to come over, right? Coming over yeah. here, I mean, they're not over there. So the Russian factor is always something that's discussed to great lengths when you're preparing for the draft because of that issue of how much access, when will they come, 
And let's face it, it's a different animal simply because they have contracts. Like you may be drafting someone or considering drafting a player in the second round. You know, if a guy's got two or three years on his deal and you have to factor that in that they, you know, they may not come. And I guess the most classic well-known example is look at a guy like Corell, you know, Kippers off in Minnesota. I remember working with a guy in Minnesota who joked that I think it was three GMs in five years from the time they drafted him to the time he was playing in the NHL. So it's, it takes a long time and you still have to factor that into your thinking when you, when you do this. Yeah. And, you know, I guess when you have more access to them, you can maybe have a little bit more impact as to what they're going to be working on or their ice time and stuff. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. And especially when it's our, we're lucky, like I said, I'm not sure we're cut out there, but our guys, like with having Jeff coordinate our guy in Ottawa and we got a guy in Europe all the time. It's a nice peace of mind when we draft European players for me at least, but I know we've got a guy in Europe, if it's a Finnish player, a Swedish player, or whatever, Czech player, like, and, and look at whoever, what they're going to play the next year. So I guess generally that next couple of years, you know, you're not sure, but you made a point right away, Pete, when you said if they're coming back to the OHL or maybe it's a European player that you drafted out of a men's league, but, you know, a, an OHL team took a flyer on him in the first eligibility year for his European draft. Maybe now him and his agent get together and that's a discussion that takes place sort of a, in the C-suite above me with management where they may look at with the agent, and the player and say, well, you know, you can stay and play with the team that drafted you and we'll have our development guys in there more often. And it's less, you know, you're over here, you're closer to where you want to be. And you look at a guy like who's come up through, it can work out for them for sure. Yeah, get that, you know, culture adaptation out of the way right. so that, you know, after a year in junior, they're used to language and the food and all that stuff. Well, and you just hit two of the big ones. Like if they're playing in the OHL, you know that they're getting accustomed to English, which is still the language of the locker room in the NHL. And they're, you know, the meals, it's games Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, three of those four days, usually, as you know, you know where you're going to be. You're on the bus. You get practice every day. Most teams practice in the morning now, like NHL teams. So yeah, you're getting a very pro type schedule, which are, Player development people love to and do a great job monitoring that situation. All right. Our next question was someone wants to know is more a more of a scouting question. And and I think one of the most important skills, and we talked about them before, is smarts and thinking the game. Seeing players at an elite pace is so important. And you know, having players that can process the game at an elite pace can compensate for, you know, maybe a lack of some other skills. Maybe they're not the fleetest of foot, but they can think about where they need to be and whatnot. What are some things you look at when you're watching a player to try and identify that skill or ability? And like, what are some of the telltale signs you can look for when scouting for hockey smarts? Well, a couple of them that that come to mind for me, I think you sort of hit on it early, is if you can catch them in a in an environment such as a tournament or, or uh, say the World Juniors or the Halinka, where they're playing against the best players in their age group, that's a wonderful opportunity to really focus in on hockey sense, especially when the games get late and fatigue is setting in or a tournament gets late and some players, it just seems to slow down for them and they're just smart enough to get by. And I think where you're going with that, and I agree with you, is sometimes a fleet of foot is the holdback, but the brain might be compensating more than enough for the lack of the, sk- the skating. And that's still something players can do nowadays. I, and I could name guys in the last three or four years that probably every team had concerns over certain guys' speed and skating, but they were so smart and they got themselves in scoring places and scoring opportunities, or they were defensemen that just moved the puck so well and read things so early that their skating could be just not maybe just below average NHL level, but their sense and their smarts and their decision-making was so good that it allowed them to play. The other thing for me is penalty killing is a good tell, if that's something you want to be specific about. But you have to be careful, I think. And let me clarify that, uh, first of all, and say, just because a guy doesn't kill penalties doesn't mean his coach doesn't think he's smart. He may not kill penalties because he plays every second shift and plays the power play for example as a defenseman but i'll give you another player that to me had an elite level of, of sense and if you recall a player named jalen chatfield that we signed in vancouver as a free agent played in windsor 
and I think it's still playing in Carolina, I believe now, defenseman. Yep. Yep. So yeah, Jalen was a free agent signing. We almost drafted him every single year. He was eligible to get drafted. We almost drafted him. And then we finally signed him as a free agent overage player. He came to hockey late. So that was part of the backstory that I liked and our scouting staff liked and our management liked. His dad, I think, was an, an NBA player or an elite basketball player. And he was a really good baseball player. He played other sports, but never really zeroed in on hockey. But where I'm going with the penalty killing is Jalen was an elite penalty killer. And I think he still is. He could read the weak side as a defenseman and the play from in front of the net. And when you're playing with one less player, and you're really smart, that gives me some comfort for a player's sense. And just because there may be a third pairing defensive guy still need to be smart. And those players, I think, late in the draft, when they're maybe not as valued because there's third pairing defensive guys, there's still players that are very valuable in any shutdown penalty killing role. So to me, penalty killing, if the coach... Now, that may be something at the end of the year you might say, you know, why does this person not kill penalties? And maybe they don't get the opportunity. But penalty killing decisions as a forward in the neutral zone, when the rotation comes high to low, anytime you're a really smart penalty killer, I think that speaks to your hockey sense. And also one last thing I'd add to that is I get excited sometimes when I see a player that when a team has a lot of injuries, and this is an OHL thing, Pete, you've seen this, there's so many guys banged up by a Sunday afternoon at two o'clock in Mississauga or six o'clock in Sunday night in Oshawa that you get some guy that was a right winger and now they throw him back on D or a D that they throw up on the wing and they can make decisions and think out of position. That That's a pretty good sign of hockey sense for me. I love that. I want to ask you something that happens to me. I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes when I'm watching a player, I'm not going to say scouting a player, but when I'm watching a player, okay. I get... <laughs> really distracted by someone else, right? I go in there to watch a certain player and someone else catches my, either in a good way or a bad way, right? Like maybe someone is just shutting that player down consistently or getting beat consistently. I'm wondering, what do you do in this situation? Because for me, I'm not reporting back to a team. I can just transition to to watching that person. But do you make a note of it? Do you try to watch them both or just kind of circle back to that player or maybe tell someone else about that player? How do you kind of approach that situation? Well, I sort of, first of all, I hear you because I think that happens to everyone if we're being totally honest. And I would make a note of it and I'd do all those things you just mentioned. And if there was a player that I just couldn't stop watching and sometimes for a good or a bad reason, you go into a game with players that have been identified usually from their underage year, for example. So I'd have to answer that question sort of in two ways. If you're a crossover scout doing everywhere in the world and you're only seeing people maybe that are A-rated players in the top three rounds, you don't have the luxury of multiple views on that player to say, was that just an anomaly? Was he just played out of his mind that day? And I couldn't stop watching him because he was great. And then everyone else. So by following that in your report saying, just almost like you said, how I would write that up would be, I don't know what got into this guy today, but he was unbelievable. He had a goal and two assists. The puck followed him everywhere he went. I'm not sure, you know, where he fits in my list or whether I'd have him on my list. But the next time the crossover guys come through town or the next time I go back and see this player, I'm going to make it a point to to see if this was for real or not. And that would be a good follow-up question throughout the next while with the assistant coaches or a positional coach or somebody to at least ask a question about that guy. Because sometimes that's what happens. You go to watch a certain player and, and you're thinking you're there to watch that player. One of my very first scouting experiences was a Western Michigan as an assistant coach going to recruit a player. And we ended up recruiting a totally different guy in his team who we didn't even have identified and giving him a scholarship. And, and he's <laughs> coaching now at St. Lawrence, Brent, Brent Brecky. Yeah. And we still laugh about it, but I didn't go to Rochester, Minnesota to watch Brent play. I went there to watch his teammate play who was second or third in scoring, I think in the, on his team. And he, we were going there and that night, I couldn't help but watch this guy play defense. I just thought he was a really good player and told our head coach about it. And he went and followed up with it. And we ended up getting Brent, who was a really good college player and a minor league pro guy. So, yeah, that that happens, Victor. It happens more than you think. But you also can't watch 40 guys in a game. It's impossible. So your regional guys that you're counting on to get 10 views maybe of every OHL team, they're the guys you would hope would have the bigger picture with the longer 
amount of information on a guy. So it's not just a one-off in either direction, real good or real bad. And goalies get pulled. I remember Dan Cloutier telling us that all the time too. I'm sure you remember who Dan Cloutier, he was our goalie guy in Vancouver and, and had a really good NHL career. He used to always remind us at our meetings all the time because someone would be talking about a goalie and say, oh, I saw him, but you know, they pulled him after the first period when he gave up six goals. And you'd be thinking, I don't even want to draft him, but everyone gets pulled, <laughs> you know, and you have to be reminded of that sometimes by the goalie guy that giving up goals and getting pulled is part of the game. Doesn't mean you don't, couldn't go on to have a successful NHL career. Right. Yeah. Everyone has a bad day and it might not even have been right. his fault. Maybe his team was just playing like, like a bunch yeah. of dogs in front of him and yeah. hung him out to dry. I've seen that. Yeah. So another skill, one factor we didn't ever really consider or quite frankly care about when we're talking fantasy hockey for our teams and our drafts is character or personality. And I'm guessing right. that's a pretty big deal in real life. Now you talked about compete earlier. They might be kind of similar. So what is the type of questions do you ask players to get some insights there? And what can you learn about a player's character from watching them play? I don't think you can learn hardly anything about character watching them play. I think that's why we separated character. We used to have a compete slash character rating in Vancouver. And I thought it was great when Eric Crawford was, I think, was the person behind stopping those being together because I think you can grade compete and you can see who wins 50-50 pucks and you can see who wins battles in front of the net. You can rate compete and probably give it a number, talk about it, but you can't really do that with character until you know the person you're dealing with. And, and they're two very different things. But I know for us, when the draft comes around, and a lot of teams are doing it now, they're spending a lot more time because of the well, there's lots of reasons because of the commitment, because of what entry level contracts are valued at, because of not wanting to have issues per se after the fact and find out. So the amount of work that goes on in the process from during the year, talking to other people and hearing what other people say about those players, like the coach, the assistant coach, for example, sometimes you'll have contacts through teachers. Billets is a good source. And it, most of those people you would hope that talk to you about players that are going to be drafted would have nothing but really positive things to say about them. And if there's not positive things to say about them, it's your duty and obligation to pass those along, honestly, to, to management and because they need to make decisions on what they want to do about that. And there's been some well-documented cases in the last few years where, you know, players were left out of the draft, asked to not be drafted, got drafted, went back into the draft, and based entirely on maybe one incident, two instances, lack of character. I'm sure players, when they get moved, even at the NHL level, there's a lot of character discussions. But I will say we go to great lengths to make sure we don't miss on character and we get high character players. And at the end of that process, Ron has the final stamp, which he does for everyone on this is an issue that we don't want to deal with and we're just not going to have that player on our list. And that's his, he has that forever. As long as he's the general manager of our team, that's for him to decide. But it feels good going the other way when you see a player, for example, like Ty Carte, who's got a ton of character, who gets a chance to play and proves himself and starts to show signs of an NHL player that has worked hard and is a strong character, good person. Those are nice when that works out that way. But we all, you know, turn on the sports. Sometimes the bad news story trumps the good news story, right? Yeah, it's better clickbait. <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't matter for fantasy hockey, but that's no. an interesting angle there. So a lot of the listeners like watching hockey and finding prospects on our dynasty teams and want to take that passion for hockey and watching prospects and take it from a hobby and turn it into a daytime job. What are some some pieces of advice you can give people who want to break into the hockey industry as a scout or in any role? Well, I think starting, I would say a couple of things. I sort of had this question over the years, and I think it's a great question. And I, and I take it quite seriously because I know how hard it is to get started in these type of things. Having gone through it years ago, it's hard to take something you love so much. And I, I hear the feel the frustration that if you could just get someone to pay you to do it and it could pay your bills, it would be awesome because you wouldn't really feel like you're working. I get it. So I would say the, the way I've answered that over the years is you, you almost have to figure out a way to, to be able to pull it off, for lack of a better term, 
get the experience and get the opportunity close to home so it doesn't cost you so much money to to go away and do it or have someone bankroll it now if you can get someone to bankroll it you know travel around and pay for your gas and pay for your hotel and figure out a way to knock the door down but i think the more practical way is if you could get on part-time even in any type of role with a anything in the ohl or tier two or start whatever the highest level you can get started into and if it's scouting if it's broadcast if it's play-by-play whatever it is there's some pretty neat stories out there where someone started and it worked out pretty quick but it just doesn't seem quick because patience is lacking everywhere nowadays that it can work out but you have to be willing to sort of put in your time for next to nothing if not close to nothing to prove that you can do it and for scouting for example i know some guys that have started doing it for very little for teams in the OHL and got the hang of it, got to know some people in a rink, introduced themselves. Most people are very willing to talk to the other people about getting into the profession and finding a way to do, like I look at the people we've hired in the last three, two years in Seattle, there's been skills development people. We have the first female assistant coach in the American League on the bench who started doing skills stuff during COVID because some of the NHL guys really liked the work she was doing with skating. So I think there's more chance now that can work out if you're willing to just find a way to to get your foot in the door with something close by geographically so it just doesn't cost you so much money to try and do it. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah. I love the acceptance of diversity that we're starting to see. And Seattle is really trailblazing that. So, you know, stick taps to to you guys for what you're doing there. Really enjoy seeing that. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of people go from the online scouting community and one of our own got hired by Carolina in over in Finland there, Yoki Nevolainen. So uh, you probably know, you. did you guys work together at the same time in Carolina? No, I wasn't in Carolina. No, I was in okay. Arizona for a year, but I know the person you're talking about. And there's another fella, his name just escaped me. He was part of the Canucks army and, and they hired him right after I left Vancouver. I just, his name just escaped me, but he was a, an online analytics Canucks army that mm. would put together his draft list and put together his stuff. And right after probably six months after I left there, I remember, and he's still there and he's doing, from what I've heard, he's doing a great job. And he was someone who was blogging, writing and, and podcasting about their draft picks and their players. And they finally hired him. So, you know, <laughs> you hear that everybody, it can happen. Don't give up. Keep chasing that dream. On our episode 15 with Shane, I asked him, do NHL teams like pay attention to the online community? And he said, absolutely more than you think they do. They are paying attention to that stuff. So I thought that was interesting, too. I'd always assume that you guys would just put that on your mind list. I can only speak for myself, but I know some guys sort of dismiss it. And I think that's sort of a natural thing to do because it can be, I don't want to use the word threatening, but. I can't think of a better term, really, because if somebody's writing and has access and it's out there and they're going to get hired, maybe you're not. I don't know what where the thinking comes from. But I will say on the other teams I've been with, and especially the one year in Arizona, we always had an industry rating tagged right onto the profile pages of a sort of a combination number of McKenzie, Button, Central Scouting. Oh, what's the other fellow? Corey, Corey Prom, and his name came up one time, I'm sure. I've seen people talking to Corey too, who I remember meeting a couple of years ago. So I think people pay attention to those lists more than you think. And so, you know, there's something to be said for if you keep your lists, obviously that's another piece of advice. <laughs> like if you can keep your list or wherever you, however you keep it. And three years from now, for example, I would think if you ever got a chance to show somebody that your list three or four years from now, from this past draft was excellent, meaning if more of your players played than anyone else's list, then you're onto something. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, you're onto something. <laughs> mm, yeah. And that guy's name is Ryan Beach. I think that's who you're thinking of. Sorry, you're right. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly who it is. Thanks for the help on that one. Yeah. That's yeah, who it that is. was that was a great story for sure. Light the lamp with DraftKings Sportsbook. Right now, new customers can make a five dollar bet and score one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and sign up with code THPN. That's code THPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 
a lot of our listeners were wondering, and this hasn't happened very often, obviously, just you recently with the Kraken in Vegas, but is it a bit different preparing for a first draft strategy? Like, as a, you know, when you don't have a prospect cover, you don't have anyone in the organization, was that a bit different than, you know, maybe as you've had a lot of experience preparing, you know, your list and scouting for a team that, you know, is already established and has prospects already in the system. So can you tell us a little bit about that process initially when you guys set out to make your first ever selections? Yeah, it was very different. And Victor, and that was part of the attraction for me and part of the gratitude. And, you know, I was very grateful when Ron Francis reached out and gave me an opportunity to be in Seattle because that, experience and a good friend of mine stanley cup champion by the way ken holly from kingston a little plug for kent he had that experience in vegas so when we went there that was really really neat to sit there and watch our pro scouts go through the expansion draft first of all and then in the same weekend i think it was like the next day or two days later i I recall we did our very first amateur draft from the space needle during covid which was very different obviously for all of us but to not have a prospect pool at all. Victor was really weird for me because I would find myself writing reports like <laughs> this is a good player for invite camp. If we need this type of player for a rookie tournament, and I'm going, hang on a sec. We don't have a rookie term. We don't have any players. <laughs> We're not going to a rookie tournament. <laughs> so, so yeah, I catch myself sometimes thinking this is just weird. And I joked with some of our younger scouts and I still have a joke with them. And because, you know, you got to make light where you can. When you have no prospects and you have a draft for the first you know, certain amount of time, you haven't made a mistake yet. And then you get a little bit of leeway there. Whereas every other place I've worked, I was there long enough and the team had players long enough and prospects long enough that there it's a very can be a very harsh environment when prospects struggle or people don't play as well as you would hope and maybe they don't work out. And, you know, it's a business as we know judged on wins and losses and and patience is very limited with most NHL teams. So taking the time to let someone maybe work through things, doesn't happen a whole lot or maybe as much as it should. So yeah, it was very different, very different, but a really neat experience, but very different preparing for first amateur draft and then the second one, and then eventually having 10 players on a team in Charlotte shared with Florida and 10 guys pretty much in the American league. And then, you know, then on to having a team last year go to the game seven is really cool. I don't know if you can speak to it at all, but was there an emphasis on, you know, older players, perhaps? I just remember Riker Evans was someone that I just remember thinking like, oh, an overager as their second pick. Like that was kind of interesting, you know, especially, well, you didn't, I don't know. I mean, Veneers was kind of a, I don't want to say no brainer, but he was obviously a very good player, right? So they're, that was the first yeah. one. And then you went Evans and it was like, oh, okay, like, I don't know. It just kind of surprised me a bit, I guess. Yeah, he's a draft. He was a draft plus one. He could have went back and played away, uh, but, but I believe. But having been an older player, I think Riker for us, Jay, you're right in saying it didn't really matter to us about age because we didn't have any prospects, if that's what your question is. Like, like we didn't, it wasn't as big a factor maybe as it would have been for some other teams because for us to put defensemen and put players into the system, their date of birth, we needed everything. We needed multiple dates of birth. So in Vancouver, for example, to go the other way, I remember we were one year, I forget, it was the year we signed Quinn. So you, you might know these things better than I would the dates, but we were very limited on contracts that year and Quinn was coming out of Michigan. So obviously we needed a contract at the end of the year for him, but we were almost up to the cap on just sheer number of contracts. So if you watch some killer free agent overage guy in the OHL that year and said, oh, you know, there was no use of making a phone call to say to management A or your director of amateur scouting at the time to say, this guy's going to, he's killing it. We miss this guy. We should sign this guy. That wouldn't have happened. We didn't have any contracts. But for Seattle, drafting Riker in the second round, he's turned out to be a real good player for us. The age issue wasn't the same factor it was with when I've been with other teams. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. It makes perfect sense. Do you think there's a specific personality trait that a scout needs to have? Like what's the most important trait you think a scout needs to have? I think probably the most important if I were to rank them, Evan would be, you need to have, be confident in your opinion and stick to it. Put it that way. But you also have to be able to listen to your peers. Do you know what I mean? Like, I guess most important is, this is what I see in this player. My experience tells me this is what they project out at. 
I'm not going to let you talk me out of it. <laughs> I'm going to stick to my guns, but I need to listen to the room as well because you might be wrong. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> so you need to be have a, yeah. have a strong opinion, but you also need to be a good listener. I think that's a good summary. A real strong opinion, but a, a good listener. What is the worst thing impact that social media has had in terms of scouting? Like we know the good it's done is, you know, more vi- ability to see video of prospects and other web. But like, what's been the biggest, like the worst impact of part of social media for scouting? I think for scouting in general, Evan, I think it's been sort of the, I think what Pete called a clickbait or click whatever he said there. I'm not a big social media guy. It's just the the negativity sometimes around what could be a very innocent thing that someone gets painted in that brush for a moment and maybe did nothing wrong, but they're up against trying to prove that wasn't the case or wasn't true and get asked about it over and over again. And inevitably it starts to change your opinion. Now for me, it's very simple because I get teased about it all the time. I don't have any, I don't follow it. I probably should, but I even get screenshots sent to me of social media about a certain player, but I'm not on any of those things. I I go on them sometimes to get the lineups, but I know younger scouts, especially I'll get a screenshot of Oh, did you see this? This kid is, he's a bad kid. Here's a picture of him doing this. And I always think, is it true? Like, like that's my first question. Is it true? Because maybe it's not, maybe it's not even that kid. Like, I don't know enough about social media, but I do know that some people have these ways. They look like they're someone else, correct? Like a burner account or whatever they call it, or you're some, you know, you're someone else. I know of one in particular, actually, where somebody posts stuff looking like a certain person that's not them. And I think that's so wrong. So I think my answer to the question is it scares me how much people follow it to see what kids are doing and to see. But I always wonder two things. You better make find out if it's true or not and then decide whether it matters. And if it's something big and it's negative and it's terrible, then it matters. But, you know, I go back to the same thing. Cell phones have changed the game, right, in many ways. Because you, these kids now, you're always a pitcher away from maybe a career ender, for lack of a better term. Yeah, they've changed a lot in the world. I'm glad I was in high school before cell phones were a thing. That would have been that would have been questionable. <laughs> Going to get worse with the AI. So yeah. My last question for you today, Chris, is you touched on it earlier with the size factor. Does it matter? How important is it? I mean, we see player reports with comments like has great size or is an undersized player. And so I think size absolutely does matter. The question, Mm -hmm. though, is how much? Is there a line in the sand where you feel no matter what else, a player under X feet tall is undraftable, no matter how good he is? Well, I think I used to think that there was a number in a line. I'll sort of answer it two ways. I think with goalies, I feel bad for them because I think there's this goalie number out there now. I forget, I even forget what it is because I think it's 6'2". It might even be higher now, 6'3". Like these poor goalies that could be unbelievable. Goalies that because they're 6'1", are getting beat down. So I think the goalie size issue is something that I hope starts to swing away from just stopping the puck. And it's mm-hmm. a very crazy coach level position. But as far as small players go, I guess I look at it this way. Our job as scouts, or maybe this is a good piece of advice. I look at Vegas, for example. And they just won the cup. So they're the best team in the world. But there was only one player, as far as what I could see on that roster, Nick Hegg, that was a drafted player off their team since they've come into the league. That was a significant contributor during the Stanley Cup playoffs. All those other players in that roster have been either traded for or brought in, however they've acquired those players. Now, they've still got good prospect pool. They've still got picks. They've done a great job there. But if you could go to a scout, sometimes you get too attached, for lack of a better term, and you say, well, gee, I don't want all of our picks to be traded. Like those are, I'm connected to those players. Those are my guys. Those are the guys I went to bat for or I battled for. And you know, I wanted to see them in the Kraken uniform forever. But you've got to sort of flip that, I think, and say, if three years from now, Matty Beneers and maybe Riker, for example, our first two picks ever, if they were the only two players on the ice with and we won the Stanley Cup, I'll take that. Like, I would take that. <laughs> Provided yeah. it doesn't leave the place des- destitute, you know, deserted for the next 
but that's not my decision. I guess the way I want to answer that question is that's not my job. My job is if I see a player and I think he's a good NHL player and he could be the next Yanni Gord for the Kraken, then I put him on my list where I think he deserves to be on the list. And it's up to Ron at the end of the day to decide what the team needs, not me. Because in scouting, if you start to be armchair GM, and that's the biggest mistake I think a lot of young people especially make, that's not your job. The GM's job is to build the team. Your job is to put your list together in order of the players from top to bottom that you feel are going to be NHL players. And if we already have a smaller player, for example, like Yanni Gordon, it's not a scout's job to say, well, we can't have two. That's Ron's job to say we can't have two. So not mine. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. That's So yeah, young, small I... players are more and more now. Marshall so, for example, like the little guys, that, smaller guys, they have that dog and a bone often and they have skill and a shot and skate, but they have to have one thing usually sense. All those things you mentioned, usually a smaller player, I'm saying five, eight, nine, now 10, they have to have something that gives them a chance and it's usually compete in my mind. Right. Yeah. I mean, if they're undersized, I mean, they can be smart about it and put themselves mm-hmm. into situations that... They're not going to get obliterated or mm. find ways to get pucks off the player other than brute force or just be smarter about it. There's more yeah. than one way to skin a cat, right? Right, Pete. And that's one of the best answers I ever got years ago. I think I was my second year in van, maybe. We asked, I forget who the player was. But he was tiny. And somebody asked him of a certain play that they had been at the game. And they said, well, when that puck was there 50-50, like, why didn't you just like dig right in there, jam in there? And he said, well, if you play the clip longer if you go back to that game we didn't have the clips but he, they were talking about the same play and they knew it and he said to our scout that was there he said well i end up with the puck in that play if you recall i ended up poking it at the last second but i didn't go in there but he said the biggest reason i didn't go in there is i know i knew that defenseman as soon as the puck went into the corner when i'm in the zone i play in the summer with them i'm giving up four and a half five inches there and probably close to 40 pounds if i go in the way you're talking about going in i probably not i'm gonna get hurt so I have to find another way. I thought that was a great answer. Yeah. You know what you're good at and do that yeah. and avoid the stuff yeah. that you're not so good at. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> good point. Hell yeah. I love that insight from the players. Yeah. And I have one more question. Yep. Chris. Well, we could, I'm sure we could talk to you all night, but we want to respect your time. But no as a, as an amateur scout, I'm not sure how much you'll be able to talk about the players in your system, but a lot of our listeners would love to know your thoughts on, you know, some of the players and maybe, you know, or remember the OHL guys a little bit more like Shane Wright, Ty Nelson, mm-hmm. Brendan Morrison. But if you have mm-hmm. any thoughts on them and, you know, also Ty Cartier, Riker Evans, Joey Decord, these are all guys that our listeners really wanted to have you touch on if you're able to. Yeah, I can t- touch on a little bit for sure. I think the thing about, say, for example, in no particular order with Shane, I think what impressed me about Shane was coming back to Prospects Camp development camp pardon me this year to to be in that leadership role after all the teams he played on and delivered at the world juniors and had really good games at the when they mattered the most at the end of the series in the american league in the calder cup like he got better so for me i look at the fact that he had the option to probably say look i need to get a little break here and get home and get some time but his first thought was to be a leader and get into seattle and development camp was important to be back there and set the example for younger players so I look at that situation and that makes you feel reassured that he's dialed in to, to take a run at being in the lineup next year. And same with a guy like Ty Karche. Like, I think he knows that he was put in a great situation, unfortunately, on a hit that don't get me started on that should have been <laughs> suspended but more, more. But anyway, you look at how he got in the lineup when McCann gets hurt on McCarr's play there. And he gets an opportunity and he makes the most of it. So he, I know he's probably gone into the summer looking. I think he told someone in an interview I read that he went in there for thinking he was going to stay in the American League last year and have a great year in the American League. This year he's going in to say, I want to play in the NHL, being a full-time NHL player. And Riker's thinking that way and Ty's thinking that way. And Matty Beneers is coming off a Calder Trophy season and, and Logan Morrison is signed with a goal-scoring attitude who should be a player that can hopefully put up numbers in the American League. Ty Nelson has been a model citizen of nutrition and fitness and health and a leader. So those kids, seeing them take those next steps, Victor, in their development, where you hoped it was going to go, and Jeff Tamblini and those guys steering the ship that it's gone that way, that makes you feel good that those things are going in the right direction, put it that way. 
with the success that the, the Firebirds had this season in the Calder, you know, coming just shy, coming up just short of the Calder Cup, how important is that for those kids to to grow together and learn together, pieces, you know, that are going to be a future part of the organization? But how important is that for them to succeed in the playoffs and gain that confidence? Okay, I think it's critical, Evan. It's absolutely critical, and it's a great point. When those players, they went down there for, I think the deal was they were all going to go down for two weeks and then see how it sort of played out. And Jeff Tambellini met every single one of them there as soon as they ended up there. David Goyette's another person I forgot about. Winterton ended up down there. So when those kids were there and they had that kind of success and they see what it takes to win and they get to that close to winning the Calder Cup, to share that together and bond that together, you can't, you, know, you can't make that up. You can't recreate that. That's real life experience, real game experience, pressure situations. Some of them got some power play time, some penalty kill time, some good ice time in critical situations with a lot of people in the building. And they saw how fun it is to play in Coachella Valley. And if you ever get a chance to get down there and watch a game in Palm Springs, it's unbelievable. We were down there for our meetings in January and the management team, Ronnie Francis, Jason Bottle, they made sure we got over to a game together after our meetings. And it was really something to see that place rocking in its first year, right out of the gate, brand new building. And what a place to play in the American League. So, no, it was great. That And a good point. That, that That's going to serve those kids well down the road, we hope, uh, for in the future of the Kraken. Both these guys are in California, so that's maybe not as far. I'm not sure where Coachella is compared to where you guys live, but maybe you can go and catch some uh, some Firebirds games. It's, it's a little far from me, but I have seen, I, I live close to the shark, to the Barracuda. And so I've seen some Coachella Valley games against the Barracuda. That's super fun, but I haven't been to their arena. That's like a six hour drive or so for me. Nothing to it. You want it? That's good training for scouting right there, right there. A little six hour yeah. trip. <laughs> that's scouting life. That's a day trip. That's no problem. <laughs> that's in and out. Thank you so much for giving us some of your valuable time. I'm really looking forward to seeing you at some France games soon. So uh, until then, I guess enjoy what's left of summer, pal. Absolutely, Pete. Thanks for having me on, Victor, Evan, and the guys. You know, had a great time, Pete. And if you want to get together some other time or get back on it, I'll look forward to seeing you in the rink. And if you want to follow up later on with another chat, have me back on. I'd be more than happy to come on and talk hockey again, guys. That's okay. a deal. Thanks, Chris. All right, Take guys. care. Take care. Bye mm-hmm. now. Thanks for listening to Dauber Prospects Report number 20. For feedback on the show or to chat with us, follow us on Twitter at DPR underscore show, at Farling, at Victor Nuno 12, and at Sabarin 91. Don't forget to follow HockeyPodNet and all the great podcasts on the network. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, the podcast aggregator of your choice. Leave us a five-star review. Makes us happy. That's it for this episode, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next time and keep your stick on the ice. I got a good deal on those boys. The scout said they showed a lot of promise. Let's do that hockey.